reading is Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you have your pew Bibles, that's page 1580. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." More than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to your words today, that you will bless our time, you will glorify yourself, and that you would do all that you intend to accomplish through your holy word. Amen. Okay, you may want to keep a finger or a ribbon or something in uh, uh, Philippians 3. We'll be spending the bulk of our time there. But we're going to begin this morning in John, uh, John's Gospel, Chapter 1. John's Gospel, Chapter 1. Um, as we come to a new year, um, it, it is, of course, completely artificial. It is just another day. Um, there are different countries, different cultures that celebrate a new year on completely different times of the year. And um, I don't suppose ours is any more valid than anybody else's. But nonetheless, in the culture in which we are in and in the time in which we're in and the location that we're in, we do look at today as being a new year. And I don't think it hurts us to have a, a time where we consider the the time to be fresh. I mean, in a sense, we get to do that every week. In another sense, we get to do it every day as believers. But um, it doesn't hurt us once a year to have a period of time where we, we reassess and we look back and we look at what we've done and what we've accomplished and what has occurred and we look ahead to what we hope to do. I just hope that as uh, believers that we would look ahead um, ever more reliant and trusting in the sovereignty of God rather than our, in our own plans and dedication and devotion. All that said, what I want to focus on today is, as we start the new year, is something that is a good place to start, and it's something that is a good place for us to start every year and every week and every day, and it is with the faith 
and the salvation that is the beginning of each and every one of our journeys, without which we don't have a journey. And I want to just consider, I hope many of you spent time in John chapter 1 over Christmas, and uh, it's a glorious passage of Scripture. And in that prologue, in that first 18 verses, we have this um, very... Precise structure. It begins with declaring the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it ends at verse 18, also declaring the deity of Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. The only begotten God there is a reference to Christ. So we have at the beginning of the prologue, the Father and the Son distinct, and yet the Son being God just as the Father is God. And we have exactly the same concepts at the end of that prologue as well. And as you have that structure, it's, regulars will know the expression chiastic, it's, it's structured similarly going outwards and going inwards from the end. And the very center of John's prologue is found in verse 12. And I'd love to another time maybe go through the entire structure of John 1 1 to 18 and, and justify that, but take my word for it for today for the sake of brevity. And the center of this passage is chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And there at the center of John's prologue, at the center piece there, we have the center of his gospel and indeed the center of our faith. That those who believe will have the right to be children of God. To those who believe. And it is that belief that is so central to John's gospel. Now, I've taught on this before at this church, so I'm just going to skim at this point. For those of you who haven't heard this before, there's other sermons you can go back and have this in more detail. But at the end of chapter 2, there are many people uh, at that time who believed in Jesus. We're told in chapter 2 and verse 23... He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name. And the expression there, believed in his name, is the same expression that we found in chapter 1 and verse 12. To those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. And here in chapter 2 and 23, we're told that many believed in his name. It's exactly the same expression. And they believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing and so Jesus is doing things he's doing miracles he's doing signs and things are being accomplished and things are being done and as a result of that people are believing in his name but then we're told in verse 24 that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them and the word entrusting here is the same Greek word belief In other words, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. And he didn't believe in them because he knew all men. And verse 25, because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. We have in those two verses, or one and a half verses, we have the word man repeated three times. That we have people who are believing in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them because he knows what man, and ladies that includes you as well, he knows what we're like, he knows our hearts. And he knows that there is uh, something about mankind that is by its very nature, sinful and deceptive. What we have at the end of chapter 2 of John, as I've said many times before, is we have a, a, a problem that has to be resolved. It's a problem that has to be resolved. Because he told us in chapter 1, if you believe in his name, you have the right to be children of God. But now there are people who do believe in his name, 
And he is saying to them, I don't believe in you. I don't, I'm not entrusting myself to you. It's not just a case of Jesus sort of like, well, you know, I won't tell them where I'm going. I won't tell them how I really feel. It's not entrusting himself in that sense. There's a sense in which that they have a faith in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't have a faith in them. That there is a kind of faith that they have, but it is not a saving faith. And that seems to be at this stage in direct contradiction to chapter 1 and verse 12. We have a problem here that needs to be resolved. And that problem is resolved in the story of Nicodemus. And when we have our fourth reference to man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And I'm not going to be teaching the Nicodemus passage today. I just want you to understand that there is a type of believing that we can do that is not the believing that allows us to be saved. There is a type of faith that is not a saving faith, and Nicodemus epitomizes that kind of faith. He was a religious man. He believed in lots of things. He believed in many good and accurate things concerning Jesus. He believed that Jesus had come from the Father, which indeed he had. And so there were many things, both of a religious nature and otherwise, that Nicodemus believed, but his faith was not a saving faith. And it is, of course, in John 3, in that passage, that we have that world-famous verse, the most well-known verse in the whole Bible, For God so loved the world world, that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him, there's that expression again, shall not perish but have eternal life. And I've mentioned this before, that the great irony of our era is that we have gathered the most well-known verse of the entire Bible. We have universally agreed that this is the most important, the most well-known, the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And we say, all you've got to do is believe, and you won't perish, and you'll have eternal life. And yet, by taking that verse out of context, we've taken it from a context that is saying, in a sense, exactly the opposite. That you can believe and still perish. And you need to make absolutely certain that you have the right kind of saving faith. Because there is a type of faith that doesn't save as Nicodemus had. And that passage in John 3 goes on to declare that kind of uh, believing. Or rather, a few verses earlier, uh, declare that kind of believing that does save... And says in reference to Numbers in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes him will have eternal life. In other words, the kind of belief that will result in eternal life is the kind of belief that looks to to Jesus when he is lifted up, a reference to his coming death, In the same way that in Numbers, the people in the wilderness looked up to the serpent. And there was, and we won't turn there, we don't have time, I want to get to Philippians. But there was in the wilderness this time when there were poisonous snakes that were coming into the camp because of the idolatry and sin of the people. People were being bitten by those snakes and they were dying. The poison was running through their veins. And... Moses inquired of God, and God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the, the gold, which of course is significant, because the, 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 um, the bronze, rather, they were using these metals to make their idols anyway. I want you to take this material, I want you to forge it together, and to make the image of a serpent. I want you to lift the serpent up, and if you are bitten by the snake, this is what you do. You look at the serpent. That's it. Seems crazy, right? You've been bitten by a snake, you look at the snake. You're bitten by the snake, you look at the snake. That's it, that's it. That's all you have to do. And what we see in John's Gospel is that ultimately that serpent that was lifted up was pointing us to the cross ultimately. It was a shadow of something that will become clearer later. And that is this. That he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 
became sin for our sakes that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the image that was put up is the very image of the thing that was killing them. Jesus became the very image of sin. He was crucified like a criminal because the sin of the world was being put upon him. And that is how he was lifted up on the cross. That he is the one that we look to because, and we see the cross, we see sin. Not in him, but upon him because God is punishing him for our sins. And so the imagery, I think, is, is clear. But as I want us to understand, the context of John is this. There's a faith that doesn't save. There's a faith that doesn't save. And to have the right faith, you need to look to the one who is lifted up, otherwise you will perish. That's what happened in the wilderness. If you were in the wilderness, if you were amongst the Jews at that time, and you're in the camp and you got bitten by a snake, you can cry out to Yahweh all you like and you're going to die. You could, you could make sacrifices and you're going to die. You could slaughter the animals that you have there. Goats, sheep, oxen, doves, all the various animals that are used in the sacrificial system. You could have sacrificed them all. You could have cut your own arm off. You could have done what the the Catholics did a lot in the Middle Ages, which is, you know, flay yourself. Just kind of make a little whip of sorts and whip yourself on the back to punish yourself. You you could do all of that. You could do anything you like. You you could have you could have you could have quoted scripture and recited it. You could have done any number of religious deeds, and it would have accomplished nothing. You could have cried out to God with absolute, complete and utter sincerity and meant every word of it and you were still going to perish. Because the one thing you had to do, the only thing that qualifies you, the only thing that stopped you from perishing was looking at the serpent. And that shadow existed so that John could say this in John 3 and say to us, you are going to perish unless you have the kind of faith that looks to Christ high and lifted up. That looks to him, the son of man lifted up on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. And unless your faith is in him... And your trust is in him, then you will perish as much as any religious person. The whole point of Nicodemus is that there was nobody who was more religious. Nobody who checked more boxes. He is called the teacher of Israel, which was an idiomatic expression that referred to those who ran rabbinical schools and trained other rabbis up. He was the head of a Bible college. And it's no accident that in the very next story, we have the incident of a Samaritan woman by the well, who was despised even by her own people, and didn't check any boxes at all. And yet she exercises faith, and she is saved, and she leads many others to salvation as well. Now all of that... It's a very long-winded introduction. And it's just my way of saying that when I say to you that you can believe in Jesus, you can believe in Jesus and go to hell, that I'm not saying anything even remotely controversial. We're going to, in a few months' time, get to chapter 7 in Matthew, and we'll see that horrific passage where those people will be saying on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and that in your name? And he'll say, get away from me, I never knew you. You say, well, okay, well, that's great, but we do believe in Jesus. We understand that on the cross, 
he died in our place for our sins. So we haven't just, like Nicodemus, believed in him as just someone sent from God. Like the Samaritan woman who says, well, I perceive you're a prophet. We have, like her, gone beyond that and recognized who Jesus really is. And therefore, none of this applies to us. Well, hold on. Hold on. Because, let's go back to John 1. There is this expression, as many as received him, to them he became the right to, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And many versions will change the order of these three expressions, and I like the fact that the legacy here keeps the order of the original text. In the, in the middle of that verse, we have the, the right to become children of God, the granting of that right. Giving of that right. And either side of it, we have these two expressions. Those who received him and those who believed in his name. Now, you don't need to be an expert in the Bible or even in the English language or any sort of grammatical structure to understand that the way that's written is to parallel those two terms. Those who believed in him are those who received him and those who received him are those who believed in him. You don't get to believe in him and not receive him. You don't get to receive him and not believe in him. And so, the true saving faith is those who believe in him and those who receive him. And that's kind of where he's going in chapter 3. He's kind of moving to chapter 3 to say, it's not good enough just to believe in Jesus in some way, shape, or form. But you need to receive him and receive who he is. And who is he? He is the one who became sin for our sakes. He is the one who was lifted up on the cross. He is the one who died for our sins. And so with all of that, as our intro, let's turn to Philippians 3. Because as we turn there, the thing that I am trying to say this morning is beyond what I've said in the intro. It grieves me to say that I think that there are many, many people who would say, I believe in Jesus. And they would go beyond Nicodemus and they say, I believe he died on the cross for sin. And yet those people have never truly received him. And I think that there is very few things that has damaged the church in America more in the last generation or two than the idea that believing in Jesus is merely an intellectual agreement with the gospel. And I know, I know what 1 Corinthians 15 says. That the gospel is that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. I understand that that's the gospel. I, I get it, I understand it. But I think that you, you cannot come to the conclusion that to intellectually agree and say, yes, I believe that approximately 2,000 years ago, that Jesus, who was God and man, died on the cross for sin. And I agree with that. And, and to, to show my agreement with that, I have prayed a prayer of agreement. And now I have received him into my heart and now I am a Christian. That that understanding of the gospel has done more harm to the church in the last generation and a half in America than almost anything else. And we, the wounds of the friends has been more hurtful than the wounds of the enemies in this regard. And let me explain to you what I mean before you think I'm falling into some sort of heresy here. Let's read through what is being said. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is putting himself in the place of Nicodemus. He says, if anybody, if anybody at all is going to be saved through their deeds, through their works, through who they are, through their own flesh, it would be me. He is the Nicodemus of his day. He is a Pharisee, he's a persecutor of the church, and he's doing what the law requires him to do as much as anybody else. And then in verse 7, he says this. 
But whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, again, we're familiar with the words. We know this passage, hopefully most of us. And and so we might just kind of skim over it. But I want us to understand what he's actually saying here. What he's saying here is the things that are associated practically with faith, that these things I've counted as loss. I, I place no weight in them at all. They are perhaps even detrimental. And he says, I count them a loss... For the sake of Christ. Now, for the sake of Christ is a phrase that um, maybe by itself is a little bit uh, vague. For Christ. Um, And he repeats it uh, somewhat later on. uh, And he says, for the sake of Christ, again, for Christ. And... That by itself might be unclear as to what that means. But in verse 8, he makes it very clear. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In other words, what he's saying is this. He says, everything of value that I have is worthless in light of the surpassing value, more valuable than Jesus Christ. There's no accident that the Bible speaks of marriage as being an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. In fact, not only is it no accident, but Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the whole point of marriage from the very beginning was that it would be a way of us understanding better the relationship between Christ and the church. So if we want to make sure that our faith is a saving faith that has placed us in the church, it wouldn't do us much harm to look at the context of marriage. When... We get married. When I got married, I said vows. And I like the traditional vows. I don't like the idea that is popular today where people just make up their own vows. Oh, ever since I saw you that day at Walmart, I, I've always thought you were so wonderful. And, you know, when I heard that uh, tune play, it always makes me think of you. And, you know, it, it, that to me is like having a pound of gold and exchanging it for a pound of dung. It it might make things in your garden grow for a short period of time, but in the long run, you're going to regret it. There's some glorious vows that have been forged over time. One of those vows is, is, includes the phrase forsaking all others. Every single one of us understands the concept of adultery and the sinfulness of it. That when you get married, you're saying, you are my one, and that this relationship that we have means the forsaking of all others. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have any friends. If, if, you, if you think that that means that you don't have any other contact with human beings, you are in an abusive relationship, that is a red flag, come and have a chat afterwards, except that won't apply to you unless you're on live stream, because you are here amongst us. But, you know, and it means that we'll have conversations with other people, and you know, even other people of the opposite sex will be civil to and talk to and have friendships with and what have you. But... There is a sense in which the relationship here is being given a value, it's being assigned a value that places it above all other relationships. One thing I will say, and I think particularly uh, in marriage counselling to the wife more so than the husband, is that when you are forsaking all other relationships, you're doing so not just for now, but also for the future, And if God blesses you with children, then the relationship you have with your spouse has to be the most valuable relationship even then. And there have been countless Christian marriages that have suffered because people haven't understood that principle. 
This is the relationship above all. Now that's kind of what is being said by Paul here. He is saying that everything else of value is being counted as worthless. And I won't get into the whole debate over whether the word rubbish here means human excrement or just something that's thrown away. I tend to think it's a little bit somewhere in the middle. But the point I think is clear. That everything else is viewed negatively because this relationship is so much more important. That Christ is counted more worthy than anything else. And let's just go on from this verse a little further. And he says, you know, let's pick up in verse 8. Account all things to be lost, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord... For whom I've suffered the loss of all things. So knowing Christ involves having already suffered the loss of these things. You, you don't get to make the vow to your wife until you've made the decision to put aside the other women. You don't get to say, well, you know what? I'll marry you today. But, you know, that that woman in accounting, she's kind of cute. Let's see how it goes for a year and we'll reassess. You you don't get to do that. You have to make that decision, put aside those others and say, this is the one. And so there is a sense in which he has already suffered the loss of other things because he has known Christ. Now, knowing here is this kind of relational knowing. It's not to do with simply an intellectual agreement, an intellectual assent. There is this, I have known Christ. And in knowing him, there is a putting aside of the others, the other things. And so he has suffered loss. Not only has he suffered them loss, but he's counted them rubbish. So that, let's not forget the so that. So everything else, I've, I've, I've weighed it up. And I've not only have I said, do you know what? This woman's slightly better than the other women I have available. So I think I'll marry her. He's saying the rest of them are of no significance to me at all because this one is more highly prized and lifted up than all others. That none are, are, are worthy of consideration in comparison. And in that same way, what is being said here is, is that knowing Christ, having relationship with him, receiving him, is of such great value that everything else in comparison is, is trash, rubbish, Dung, however you want to put it, however you understand that passage, it is worthless and nothing in comparison. So that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want you to see this. I want you to see this really clearly. I want this to be really um, something that we don't, we don't, skim over okay when he says the result of me knowing christ and 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 placing him above all these other things is that i will gain him and be found in him now those terms could be interpreted a little loosely a little vaguely what does it mean to gain Christ? Are we, are we trying to gain Christ constantly in a way that we don't yet have him? Are we trying to progress forwards? Are we seeking to continue to be sanctified? I guess so. But what is being spoken of here is not merely sanctification because he goes on to explain these phrases by saying, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness of which is from God upon faith. What saves somebody is not works, it's faith. Amen? We all agree on this, right? But what is that faith? What does it look like? We've seen from John that there is a faith that can be a faith in Jesus that is not a saving faith. And we need to be really careful that our faith is genuine and that it is a saving faith. We need to make sure that we are not the people who are simply saying, save me Jesus, but we're looking to him who is lifted up. And what does that mean? What does that entail? What does it, what is, what is it that we have to do? What does it mean to receive Christ? Because for an entire generation and a half of church in America, 
receiving Christ means intellectually agreeing with the historical events of the gospel and then coming forwards and praying a prayer and asking Jesus to come into your heart. Receiving him. Is that what John means by receiving him? Well, Paul is here saying that us having this faith and the righteousness that comes with that faith, for him to receive that, for him to receive that righteousness, he had to know Christ and suffer the loss of all things. And I, and I tell you what, you can't, once you see it in this passage, you can't unsee it. Because it flows like so much of Paul's writing, just in sequence, very clearly. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things, verse 8, because I have, because of surpassing value of knowing Christ. And that happened so that I would be found in him and gain him. Not having that righteousness of my own, but the one that comes through faith in Christ, which is from God upon faith. So that I may know him, the power of resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Listen, there's only two types of people. There are those who are saved, truly saved, genuinely saved. And those who are unsaved. And those who are truly saved have a righteousness that is not of their own. Those who are truly saved will attain to the resurrection of the dead. Those who are truly saved will be found in Christ. Those who are truly saved have considered all things loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. To be frank, we have to understand that true saving faith in some way, shape or form goes so far beyond intellectually believing that there was someone called Jesus and even agreeing that he is both God and man and even agreeing that he died on the cross for sins. But it means treasuring him. Placing a value upon him that surpasses everything else. You say, where is that elsewhere in scripture? It's everywhere. It's in the word repent. Repent literally is a turning. It's the most most central word in so many of the Old Testament prophets, particularly Jeremiah. Turn, 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 turn. And the idea is this, and we talked about this countless times. The idea is you're walking one way, and here you are, you're living your life, you're doing things the way you want to do them, and you are the God and the center of your life. And then what happens is at a certain point, you stop and you turn, and you repent. And and repenting is not, it is not just saying sorry. Oh look, I'm doing these things, I'm pursuing these things, I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that. Anyway, as you were, and you keep going. That's not repentance. It doesn't matter how much sorrow there is. It doesn't matter how genuine it is. You know, when Judas was sorrowful after he betrayed Jesus, he was genuinely sorrowful. In fact, he was so sorrowful that he hung himself. And the moment that he hung himself and he died, he went to spend eternity apart from God, suffering the punishment for all eternity. There's no salvation for him because he was sorry. So repentance is turning. It's turning and leaving and going on and moving forward, moving in the opposite direction from which we were going. Repentance means repenting from the way that we lived, the things that we did, the things that we thought, the things that we believed. Repentance is, is in an essence, is saying, I am no longer in charge, God is. He gets to decide how I live, what I do, what I consider to be truthful, what I consider to be right, what I consider to be wrong, what I consider to be good, what I consider to be evil. He has that role. 
And why on earth would we give somebody that role? (laughs) Why would we say, I will never again be in charge? I will not decide how I spend my time. I won't even decide what I believe to be true or false. You can do that for me. Because we recognize the surpassing value of him over everything else. Of how we lived, what we did, what we wanted, what we desired. Every aspect of our lives was worth, is worthless in the light of Christ. I think there are lots of people who have said, well, you can have that part of my life or you can, you can, you know, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of being forgiven from my sin. I certainly don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And so I'll, I'll have a little bit of Jesus. And we are no different than the idolatrous Israelites of the Old Testament that God was spitting blood at through the prophets for most of the Old Testament. Why? Because when they wanted a harvest, they went to Baal. And then on the Day of Atonement, they went to Yahweh to forgive them for their sins. And the church today is full of people who are happy to sing about Jesus on a Sunday, but when they want answers on what to do with the problems in their life, they're far more likely to go to their therapist who worships at the altar of the religion of psychology than they are to go to the Bible. We are idolatrous. And I think that churches up and down the land are full of people who don't know Jesus. And it's becoming clearer. Becoming clearer by the day. As the world changes at a rapid rate, we get to see the churches that are going to go with the world and the churches that are going to stand on the word. We have a church up the road that has the LGBTQ banner stolen from Genesis 9 alongside a transgender banner outside their church, outside their church. Got to be careful we don't use terminology wrong. Air quotes for church. And many people would agree with me and say, well, you know, that that is wrong. That isn't the true gospel and what have you. And and they might well agree with me just because they happen to have more conservative tendencies. Just how they were raised, what they believe, you know. Rather than it being based on the word of God. And they're no safe. They're not safe, any safer than the people going to that church. We see in the beginning... God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates this and it's good. And he creates that and it's good. And he creates this and it's good. And he creates that and it's good. Good, 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 good. That's God's creation. What he does is good. He's God. He makes it. It's good. And then he makes man and he says, oh, that's very good. And the man that he created from that man, he creates a woman. And the man and the woman are placed in the garden and they're told they can eat from the fruit of all the trees of the garden because they are, you got it, good. But there's one tree in the midst that they can't eat from. And how come God says that? Because he's God and he decides what is good and what is not good. And he says, this tree, this tree is clearly good because God's made it. It has a purpose, but you mustn't eat from it. It might be good for lots of things. Maybe it was the best compost maker in the whole of creation. Maybe it was there to distinguish between creator and creation. But it was certainly good, but it wasn't good for food. Then in Genesis chapter 3, Eve looks at that fruit, and the text specifically tells us that she saw it, and saw that it was good for food. She was becoming God. She was taking control. And those of us, frail and human, with sin in our hearts, to this day we have the same struggle 
because every day we place ourselves upon the throne, we place the crown on our heads, and we say, good, evil, good, evil. And we declare what is right and wrong, what is okay, what is not okay, how we should live and how we shouldn't live, because we are essentially making ourselves God, which is at the heart of all idolatry. And so it is that this passage in Philippians 3 reminds us what it is to be a Christian. It is not merely an intellectual assent whereby we say, I agree with these things. Well, whoopee doo da! You can join the ranks of demons because they believe it too, James tells us. You say, well, I'm different from the demons because I know that this applies to me. But it doesn't apply to them. There's no salvation for demons. But I'm a human. I can be redeemed. I can be saved. And it applies to me. And we might say to some people in response to that, well, now you've just got yourself a step below the demons. Because they recognize there's no salvation for their, for their false belief. But you're, you've been duped into thinking there is for yours. You see, the reality is, is that faith, believing, is not merely intellectually agreeing. It's knowing Jesus, receiving Jesus, looking to Jesus, and all he is. Do you, do you understand what it means now to look at him who has been lifted up? It doesn't just mean to say, ah, oh, yes, there's Jesus on a cross. I believe that actually happened. I believe that he died for people and God so loved the world and I believe that. Do you understand what that cross represents? It represents the need for sin to be punished. It represents the need for God to pour out his wrath on all sin. It represents God's hatred for sin and it represents Christ defeating sin and conquering sin And so for us to turn to Christ means for us to turn away from sin. And there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and I think quite frankly over the course of the last hundred years, there's been millions upon millions upon millions who have said a prayer in their hearts, believed in certain historical events, And never turned from their sin. Now the danger, of course, with this kind of message is it always seems to hit the wrong mark. <laughs> there, there are people who need to hear this because their eternity depends on it. And they're like, yeah, I believe. I'm good. And there are those who do believe and they go away condemned. <laughs> I, I don't want either of those things to be the case. And it's my prayer that God's Holy Spirit uses the message the right way. But I would draw your attention to verse 12 to maybe try and alleviate some of that misunderstanding. Paul says in verse 12, that not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. If we think that we're not perfect, if we think that sometimes we eat fruit that we shouldn't eat, if we think that sometimes we end up living and stumbling in in continual sin, that that means that we're not Christians and we should take comfort from Paul's words. We should take comfort from his words and we should recognize that we are going to stumble, we're going to sin, we're going to fall, we're not yet finished. But he says, I will press on... Until I obtain. It was Paul who said that those that God calls, he will justify, and those he justifies, he will glorify. If we are truly saved, then we press on, and we press on with the fight against sin, and we press on so that when we come to the end, we don't have one of those awkward funeral services where we 
nervously read from the Bible wondering if any of this applies to the person before us or not. But rather we know that this is a person who has embraced Christ, received Christ, and here's the word that I've been trying to emphasize today, treasured Christ, valued Christ above all other things. Saying this to someone the other day, not in the context of New Year, perhaps we could put this into a New Year context, seeing as it's January the 1st. Resolutions tend to go with this time of year, don't they? What is it that we're supposed to do? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, ultimately, it means denying ourselves. That's what Paul's describing here in Philippians 3. It's what Jesus himself said. If you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. There's a life of suffering. It's a life of difficulty. It's a life of trials. Pick it up, let go, and off you go. Kind of like the old Aesop's fable with the, uh, the monkey with its hand in the, in the uh, vase, I think you guys say. Um, you know, with its hand in, the, in, in and it's holding on and the, the, it can't pull the hand out until it lets go. We, we need to let go of ourselves. We need to let go of our lives, our desires, our goals, our wants. Is there a Christian way of having resolutions? Oh, absolutely there is. But more often than not, our resolutions are, these are my goals, these are my desires, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to look like, this is what I want to accomplish, this is how I want to be. Let's go make it happen. But really, Christian resolutions should be more to do with letting go of those things. That isn't to say that we shouldn't lose a few pounds. That isn't to say that we shouldn't be a little healthier, that we shouldn't have goals in our business lives or, or to, to accomplish things outside of, um, you know, very Christian specific things. I'm not saying any of that. Don't misunderstand me. What I am saying, though, is this. Our lives are not about us. Following Jesus makes us very, very small. Because we see how big he is. If you have received a little Jesus, you have received no Jesus at all. Certainly not the Jesus of scripture. We must let go of our status as God and king and ruler. So that we might attribute to him accurately and rightly his role as God and king, and ruler. Less of me, and more of him, echoing John the Baptist. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that will be a good place to start our resolutions. But let me say this. As we seek to follow Jesus, we're going to stumble, we're going to struggle, we're going to fall into sin. My sins will be different than your sins, and your sins will be different than my sins. We're made differently. We struggle with different things. Uh, everything from our genes to our upbringing and everything in between means that the areas in which we fail, and we all will, will be different areas. And so what it means to follow Jesus, what we must overcome, might be different for one than it is for another. The thing that God might really want to sort out in you this year is something that he wants to do with somebody else in maybe another two or three years, or that he did two or three years ago. And so our lives look somewhat different. But I think we can say that there are a few things that are pretty much basic. If we're going to claim Christ and say that we're Christians, at the very least, we need to go to church, read our Bible, and pray. At the very least. Because if we don't do those things, the odds are we're not doing much else that we're supposed to be doing either. And it is not always as easy as it might seem to be. Because, you know, in one sense, it's pretty easy to say, well, I'm going to pray every day. But we are the most proud, self-sufficient people. 
And we love to just slip that crown back on our heads. And we love to make ourselves Lord and say, good for food, good for food, good for food. And prayer is an act of humility whereby we say, you are in charge, you determine the universe and I don't. I'm going to give my requests, my needs, my concerns, I'm going to give it all to you. It's an act of humility, it's not as easy as it might seem to be. And we get lost in the hustle and bustle of life. So how about this year, we make it our resolution to be people of prayer. Because we can't do anything in our own strength, apart from Christ. We need to be praying people. And I... For some of us, that might mean saying, okay, 10 or 15 minutes every day, we're going to carve out this time, maybe at the same time every day. Don't make it too early or you'll fail before you hit you know, the second week of January. But at a certain point, we said, maybe, maybe how we start our day with, with an extended period of prayer. Others might want to say, okay, well, I'll pray to start my day, but we'll have a proper period of prayer maybe in my lunch break or at the end of a day or, or, or however. Maybe that's how you want to structure it. But I think far better than that is this, this idea, and it's a biblical one, to be fair, of praying without ceasing. Not to mean that we, uh, we don't have a period of time when we're not praying literally, but rather that we are constantly in recognition of the sovereignty of God. And when a problem presents itself, we pray. When a problem comes up, we pray. When there's a situation that we care about, we pray. When this and that happens, we pray. Oh, look, pray. Oh, there, pray. And we're just like, we're whack-a-moling with prayer, you know? We're just like, boom, prayer, boom, prayer, boom, prayer. Because taking up our cross is unpleasant and it's messy and it's dirty. And I have a horrible feeling, and this is my own personal opinion, don't take it as scripture, that 2023 could be muckier than 2022 and 2021 and 2020. Last week, my I got to meet my... 80-year-old, I was out there for my father's 80th birthday. One of the reasons I was in England over Christmas, he turned 80. We had a lovely party. Just the day before the party, I got to meet his new girlfriend. Do you call them a girlfriend when you're 80? I don't know. His significant other, partner. She's a sweet lady, got to meet her. She came to the party as well, saw her again. Good fit. Happy for him to have happiness. Got back here home, and within 48 hours had the news that she died suddenly. Life's brutal, folks. Many of you have experienced this. And you will this year. And even if you're one whose life goes very well, you get a promotion, you get a raise, you fall in love, you get married, you're healthy. You're going to be part of the church family where people are going to suffer and people are going to lose out and people are going to die. People are going to struggle. And so we'll cry with them because that's what we do because we're family. Life's tough. So pray. Because when you try to cope with the trials of life in your own strength, you make more problems than you could possibly imagine. like trying to fix a small leak with a large sledgehammer. Fortunately, a little bit easier than praying because of the pride involved with praying and not praying is reading your Bible every day. I mean, it's so simple that they teach kids to sing it when they're like three or four in churches. Read your Bible and pray every day. Pray every day, pray every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It's just the most basic thing about being a Christian, and it's so basic we teach it to kids when they're three and almost certainly not saved. Because you just want it drilled in their heads that that's just what Christians do. What the fish do, they swim, they go, they live in water. 
What do people do? We breathe. What do Christians do? We read our Bibles and we pray. That's just what we do. So we've got a whole bunch more of the Bible reading plans printed at the back. You can read whatever Bible reading plan you like. I don't really care. You can do one that reads the Bible ten times in a year or once every ten years. I don't really care the pace you do it. If you take the one that we give you, it means that a lot of us are reading the same passages on the same days. and That's got to be a good thing. But just read it for crying out loud. Read it. Just read it. Every single year. Week after week, not once or twice in the year, week after week after week, Jenny and I reading it together, and we're like, oh, I didn't see that. Hey, did you see that? What, what about this? You think we never read the thing before? But we just keep building these layers upon layers upon layers, and we understand the Bible better because of reading it last year. So when we read it this year, we're going to see things we didn't see last year because now we've got last year's layer to build upon on top of, and we're just going to keep on growing and keep on growing and keep on growing. And if you are married, I do strongly suggest that you do it with your spouse because that's one of the best ways of forging a spiritual relationship with your spouse. It's been a real game changer for many, many people. But if you can, then do that. Read your Bible. But you know what the easiest thing of all to do? So ridiculously easy, it's just laughable. Just go to church once a week. I mean, because you know, to pray every day, you've got to you've got to put yourself out of the equation. You've got to kind of like get deal with your pride to, to read your Bible every day. You've got to you've got to kind of do something you know routinely every day. Keep up with it. Keep on top of it with all the things going on. But but to just go to church is just ridiculously simple. And yet, what what COVID did, and I thank God for COVID in this regard. What COVID did is it showed for how many people church wasn't important was not only not essential, it wasn't even important. Do you know that something like 40% of people who stopped going to church over COVID still haven't gone back? The surpassing value of knowing Christ makes everything else rubbish. Saving faith means treasuring Jesus. When a person is saved, it is not when they hear that there was someone called Jesus who died for sins and that there is forgiveness for people who sign on the dotted line, say the prayer while the pianist is playing in a minor key. I see that hand, I see that hand, and all that kind of stuff. It's a person having their eyes opened by God so they recognize that that one who died is of surpassing value to everything else in this world. That he is to be treasured more highly than anything else. He is of such great value that what I do, where I go, how I live my life, how I spend my time, from this moment forwards will be determined by Jesus because he is everything and I am nothing. And you don't need a piano to play in a minor key for that. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to sign on a dotted line because when that happens, nothing can change it. And yeah, we're going to have days when we prioritize things we shouldn't prioritize. And we're going to have days when rather than going to the Word, we go and we binge watch something on Netflix or we go to places we shouldn't go and see things we shouldn't see and whatever else. And there's all sorts of sins that lie out there ready to trip us and to entangle us. And I understand that. And I praise God that there is grace every day for us to pick ourselves back up and keep walking. But you know why we pick ourselves up and why we keep walking? Because we recognize that what we did that first day is still true. That Jesus is of more value than anything else. So whatever else we do this year, friends, let's live like we treasure Jesus above anything and everything else. Let's get involved in church, come to serve others rather than to be served, 
be equipped by the word, minister and love on one another, be a family, read your Bible and pray every day. Trust God and his sovereignty in all circumstances. And when things go bad, which they will, let's love on one another, lift one another up, and keep our eyes on the Son of Man lifted up. He who became sin for our sakes, that we might become the righteousness of God. And let's see that righteousness of God working itself out through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might have no doubt that our faith is a genuine faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have opened our eyes to the glory of the gospel. May each of us here today, whether it's for the first time or one of many, many times, may we treasure Christ above all things. May we accept that what he says is good is good and what he says is evil is evil. May we accept his paths, even when they're paths that we would never choose to walk on ourselves. May we trust his sovereign hand when he gives us gifts we would never wish upon our own enemies. And as we trust you in the midst of the trials of life, may you be glorified through us and in us as our faith is refined, exposed, and manifest to the world. Amen.